All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for keeping this building open, this place of peace and comfort. Just a wonderful time to fellowship together, to break bread that is the very bread of life, the Word of God. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. We pray for those that can't be with us here this evening, that you comfort them, that you heal them, and bring them back to the fold in your good timing. We pray also for those still lost in this world, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Was someone trying to get in or something? Did you guys hear that back there? It sounded like someone was at the door. Okay. Again, Proverbs 17, Wisdom, uh, Part 10. We're not going to get back to Proverbs 17 until the very end of this message, if I even get there, because God the Holy Spirit has had a lot to say about salvation, and it really kicked off and was sort of reinvigorated by just the first three verses of Proverbs 17, but also with the revisit of eternal assurance, let not your hearts be troubled by Scott uh, last Thursday. So if you haven't heard that message, do yourself a favor and do so. Listen to it, or maybe even share it with someone who you think might need to hear that aspect of the word of truth. And mentioning the blog, think about that. Every time the blog email goes out, or the, the weekly email goes out, it has a list of everything we've done that week. The blog, if there's a kid's corner, which is once a month. The blog, which is weekly, if the kid's corner's uh, around. And then each message that was taught. So that's up to four things that a person has basically deposited in their inbox, in their email. Nice and easy. So again, I would encourage you, to encourage others to join the, uh, the mailer. On Sunday, the Spirit reviewed uh, that series, Eternal Assurance, and put a good amount of emphasis on one particular aspect of the phrase that often accompanies any discussion regarding eternal security or, as Scott mentioned, eternal assurance. The statement is, once a person is saved, they are always saved. You'll hear people truncated even, or, you know, shrink it and say, once saved, always saved. But the Spirit said, we need to put some real emphasis on once, not just the always part, but once. So the emphasis is placed on once because modern so-called Christianity seems to glaze over this part and jump right into making promises about always saved. I mean, isn't that good news, right? Do you consider that good news if you're saved in Christ Jesus? Don't you think it's good news that you're saved, that you will not be lost forever and ever? I think so. That's really good news. But we shouldn't be giving it to someone who it's not true for. And we shouldn't be lying to them about eternal salvation. 
if they haven't got by the once part yet. Once saved. So the critical component of salvation that actually includes a bit of human engagement is the once part, not the always part. That's where humanity comes in. The once part, not the always part. What I mean to say is that the once part uh, is a function of conversion, which includes a decision in humility by man, whereas the always part is wholly God's divine providence. That's wholly up to God. Stated differently, there's no, quote, striving to enter through the narrow door, a la Luke 13, 24, with God's decision to always keep us saved. In fact, remaining saved is a promise from God to every believer that's ever been saved. That's a promise from Him. In other words, we have nothing to do with that part of it. That is wonderful news for a believer, someone who's actually been saved. I want to give you the gospel the way we've got it written on our website. I had it as a slide, but um, I'll just read it to you. Here's the gospel as we have it on the website. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, humbled himself to die on our behalf. Thus he became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty of our guilt. He rose from the dead to declare with power that he is Lord over all, and he offers eternal life freely to sinners who will surrender to him in humble, repentant faith. That's the gospel. So when you think of salvation, the crux of salvation is actually being saved. It's actually the becoming saved part, the being saved part. Whereas eternal security is one of the many results, many results, and isn't really the point of focus prior to a person being saved, strictly speaking. In other words, a person needs to first realize that they desperately need a Savior before their attention should be focused on what a daily relationship with Him might be like. Does that make sense? A person must first realize that they desperately need a Savior before they jump the gun and begin focusing on what that relationship with Him might be like or all the goodies that come with a relationship, you know. It's kind of like that analogy I gave you on Sunday with the eagle song, Lion Eyes, where a woman marries an old man for his money. She technically marries him because her ambitions are set on financial security or financial goodies. But in her heart, she never really gives due respect to the institution of marriage or the relationship she's promised the man. How about that? In her heart, her heart's never been with that marriage or with that man. Her heart has always been, where your treasure is, that where your heart, or where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, vice versa, right? 
her heart's always been where her treasure's been, which is eye, eyes on the prize, eyes on the, on, the, on the wealth. She looked past the man, past the institution of marriage, and said, I can get a lot of goodness out of this guy. And she basically uses him. And so from the outset, that marriage is a farce. This is the point the Spirit's making here about once saved. A person's marriage to Christ cannot be a farce. So the emphasis has got to be on the now for the unbeliever and their need for a Savior. That's the emphasis. It's not about, oh, I get a free trip to heaven, or I get all these grace gifts, or I get this, or I get that, and all these promises that are laid out for believers in the Bible, all the fruit of being made righteous by the hand of God at salvation, they leapfrog all of that into this, the blessings that are reserved for children of God without ever contemplating humbly their need for a Savior. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ focuses on. Again, I'll read it. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, humbled himself to die on our behalf. Thus he became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty of our guilt. He rose from the dead to declare with power that he is Lord over all, and he offers eternal life freely to sinners who will surrender to him in humble, repentant faith. Eternal security is something an existing believer is able to rest in. But it shouldn't be presented, you know, like a carrot to an unbeliever. It shouldn't be presented that way. It shouldn't be presented out of context. Uh, maybe even out of order. It shouldn't be presented that way. And I hope you get what I'm saying here because it's a fine line. If you entice someone with gifts that come as a result of something, their focus can easily become perverted. It's the same reason I think some people become cops or even soldiers. They like the idea of a uniform and the respect and all of that, but they don't really want the responsibility or the commitment that comes with it. And there's that C word again. They like the idea uh, and the, the, the respect that comes with that uniform, but they don't really want the responsibility. So they just want the uniform, not the position, right? They don't want the commitment. The gospel is essentially a marriage proposal. Think of it that way. The gospel is essentially a marriage proposal, even if it's not presented as, as such. You know, the Bible uses the marriage analogy a lot. The gospel is Christ's proposal to fallen man for salvation. And Jesus described this proposal as having conditions tied to it. Yes, it's a free gift by the grace of God, but he never stated it'd be easy. He said, I will freely give it to you, but there are conditions. Do you understand? If I'm going to welcome you into my home, 
right? How about you? Some of you have conditions like you can't come in my front door unless you take your shoes off. You can't be my friend unless you're civil. <laughs> I don't know, right? You can't be my bride unless. There are certain conditions. Is that fair? He never said it'd be easy, which is why for many of you listening to my voice right now, your own conversion, think about it that way, your own conversion took some time. Your own conversion took time. Why? Because it's not easy. If it was that easy, everybody would be like that, be done. Everybody would be saved. What's the problem? Why didn't you become saved immediately the first time you heard the gospel? Well, it's likely because it took you some time to contemplate and wrestle and to use the word we've been focused on that translates agony or agonize to strive with. You needed some time to strive and wrestle with the thought of it. The fact that your fleshly living was garbage and needed to be renounced and repented from. As most of you will attest, that decision to give up the self-life isn't always easy. You have to pry your own flesh's fingers off of it. And what makes any of us think that something a person's been used or used to for years or decades is that easily abandoned? You've got, as I've taught in the past, we come with, to the gospel with a lot of momentum in life, a lot of fleshly momentum. And it's hard to stop that train on a dime. So salvation is a big decision. Surrender to Christ is a big decision, just like marriage. It takes a lot of conviction. And this is why I believe that until a person gets pressed really low, they never really realize their need for a savior. That's why I think in America it's increasingly difficult. Think about when we first came. Hasn't our country's not that old? A few hundred years? Right? We came over here. Do you know what it was like when we first got here? It was hell on earth. Not that they weren't roads. It was woods. Imagine showing up and literally in front of you is just woods. There's no CVS. No, for real. There's no gas pumps. There's no cars. There's nothing. There's not even a, a shelter. You have to chop down trees and strip the bark and stack them up and hopefully put them together without too many gaps so you can actually not freeze at night or be eaten by animals. And then lo and behold, look what's happened to America. We've become rich and puffed up and all these things. And what's happening, if you look at the spirituality of America, presumably at the beginning of it all, compared to what it is now, what's the inverse? Wealth. Here's what it was in the beginning when there wasn't even a hut to hide in. And here's what it is now. Do you see something happening? Right? As, as wealth increases, the spiritual life of America decreases. Do you see it? Do you think that's novel? I don't know. I'll let the Bible teach you. Go to Mark 10, 17. Mark 10, 17. The point is, I don't believe that until a person gets pressed down low that they can actually realize their need for a Savior. 
Doesn't mean that can't happen to someone with wealth, with wealth, but it's really hard. Mark 10, 17. Mark 10, verse 17. <clears throat> and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did I just teach you about that? What was this guy after? You can already guess, can't you? Can't you? He said, oh, good teacher. Not even giving him proper, you know, adornment of adoration or respect. Good teacher. What do I have to do to get that goody on the other side of salvation? Do you see the point? Already this person's focused on the goodies. Huh. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Doesn't say it's impossible. He says, but how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Is it easy? Isn't, I thought it was a grace gift. It is a grace gift. What is Jesus saying? It's difficult. Why? Because you're going to wrestle with your self-life. This is literally why he cut to the marrow with this person. He saw it right off the bat and said, I know what you're doing. You're, 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 you're insulting me, first of all, because you're trying to butter me up with, you know, call me good and this kind of a thing. But you're after the goodie bag. I can see it already, right? I know your mind's not right in this, this venture you're on, this endeavor. So let me really challenge you. Get rid of all the stuff that's keeping you stuck where you are, get rid of that stuff, and you'll be free to surrender to me. Hmm. Look at verse, uh, let's see, 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, actually, no, I'm sorry, verse 25. What does he say? The famous verse, right? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound easy? If I was a camel, that would sound painful. Right? You get the point? Where does it say in the Bible that grace is easy? Never. Never. It's free, but there are conditions. There are conditions. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> oh, Peter. 
Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is, one, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Again, what, why did I read that? Because... I believe, based on Holy Scripture, that a person has to get pressed low for them to realize that they need a Savior. They have to be stripped of their own self-esteem, emphasis on self, their own self-righteousness, their own ability to provide for self. They have to abandon all that. Perfect example is what we just read. We can also think about the tax collector beating his chest before God, who was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, in Luke 18, 13. Jesus said to this man, or said this man, the one, the tax collector, was saved while the rich, arrogant, do-gooder, Pharisee, wasn't. The key phrase in that passage, especially since the parable is about salvation proper, Actually, um, I'll read it to you since most of you know it was going to be a slide, but Luke 18, 14 reads this way. I tell you, this man, the humble tax collector, went down to his house justified, saved, rather than the other, the Pharisee, who was not saved. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the nature of salvation itself? And do you see the active part of a person in their own salvation? The one who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the active part that we play in salvation, not eternal security. Our part is in the once part. <laughs> it is the spirit of self-humiliation and repentance that is acceptable to God. The Pharisees always assumed they were saved and were looking forward to the rewards in heaven. But the humble tax collector was, you know, in the moment, prostrated before God, not even willing to lift his eyes up to heaven. The Pharisees looked right up. I'm, hey, hey, I know you're up there. Look, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. Can't wait to get up there with you. The tax collector couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he's the one who got saved. We see the focus on his current condition before God which is basically him admitting he's a wretch. Let me say this. A gospel that doesn't force a person to come to terms with their own depravity isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. A gospel, little g, because they exist, 
a gospel that doesn't force a person to come to terms with their own depravity isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, that is what many so-called Christian churches preach today, a watered-down gospel that focuses on the rewards rather than the problem statement. Oh, that's great. <laughs> if you get by this problem first, I wouldn't even be focusing on all the, the blessings that children of God receive. I'd be focusing on your, your, your immediate problem, that you're a wretch. That's what the rich person missed in the story we just read. They, want, they looked beyond the fact that they were a wretch, that they were attached to their wealth even, unwilling to give it up, unwilling to commit, to surrender. They just wanted the goodies. That's the problem statement. And on that note, we can come right back to the adulterous woman with the lion eyes who marries the old rich man for his money. She didn't focus on the rightness of marriage, only the prize of being married. She didn't focus on the rightness of it, only the prize of it. This is just like the person whose marriage, supposed marriage, to Christ is a farce, where they supposedly accepted his proposal because they considered him the bearer of grace gifts. But what they fail to realize is what we just read, or I just read to you in Luke 18, 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's true, God has gifts beyond our imagination, reserved, key word, reserved for those whom he saves, including eternal security. Once saved, always saved. That, of course, is a grace gift from God. But as I've been saying for years and years now from this pulpit, humility is the key. Humility is the key to the door that we call the gospel. Once again, the Spirit has placed a lot of focus the last week on once rather than always. That Little old saying that everybody likes to just, you know, spout off. Once saved, always saved. Hoorah! And everybody's rejoicing. And there's a lot of people that are rejoicing that shouldn't be. And we shouldn't be helping them rejoice in that moment. We should be saying, you sure? Are you sure about this? I see no fruit in you. And don't say, oh, but I love Jesus. That's not fruit. That's lip service. That's gum flapping. I mean, I think the, the, the fruit of fruits, in my opinion, based on Holy Scripture, is do I want this? How does a person say they're saved and not, want, not have an affinity for the Word of God, for the truth? That is Christ. He is the Word of God. If your heart's been changed, if he's purchased you with his own blood, if you say you're saved and you have zero affinity for the word of God, how on earth do you say you're saved? I'm going to go out on a limb and say you've never been changed. Because a changed person 
Acts changed. Right? A good tree can only bear what? Good fruit. This is good fruit. This is where it starts. You have a new love, a newfound love for Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, then you need to stop at the once saved pot and stop, wor- stop rejoicing in something that isn't yours. And we should say that to ourselves whenever we see that in others. That's why the Spirit's pausing at this point in time because I would be willing to bet everybody in here has someone in their life that they need to have this discussion with. Once we are saved, then, as believers, we can begin enjoying learning about all the blessings we are given by grace as children of God. For example, from Sunday, on the topic of eternal assurance, a believer's life is perfectly secured in Christ Jesus. That person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. We read Romans 6. 3 to 11. Let's get the highlight reel. Go to Romans 6, 4. Romans 6, 4. A believer's life is perfectly secured in Christ Jesus. That person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. Romans 6, 4. This is a lot to be rejoicing over, to be joyful about. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jump forward to verse 10. That we might walk in newness of life. You see that? For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, the point, a believer's life is perfectly secured in Christ Jesus. That person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. On Sunday, the Spirit took us to another passage that speaks directly to salvation proper. Go to Matthew 13, 18. Matthew 13, verse 18. You see, the Spirit's not letting this go. And I know why. I know why. It's because a lot of people have this wrong, and we have to be constantly reminded the truth, not to let our guards down, not to tolerate a false gospel, not to tolerate a different Jesus from a different spirit. Matthew 13, 18 Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Again, you're going to have to read all of Matthew 13 to get the full context here. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is, the, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And then verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This parable reveals three instances of non-fruit-bearing unbelievers and three instances of fruit-bearing believers. And all the believers are in verse 23. Three unfruit-bearing or non-fruit-bearing unbelievers and then three instances of fruit-bearing believers. As we noted earlier, salvation is a function of humility and repentance. And ultimately, as the Spirit brought out on Sunday, it's about, about a decision to commit. It's about a decision to commit. And I don't mean commit to the goodie bag. I mean commit to Jesus Christ. Don't be a hoe. No, really, don't be lion eyes. Don't be that person that says, I can get something out of this. This is all about me anyways. I'm not about to give up the self-life. It's always about me. Whatever I can gather unto myself, I'll take it. If I got to just say, okay, okay, I'll take some invisible hand in marriage, fine. I got a free trip to heaven and some eternal life. Sprinkle it in, baby. What must I do to get eternal life? Well, first you got to let go of the self-life. What? No. It's going to go down the street for that one. Going to go, go down the street and have some jackass lie to me. Lie to my face. And you know what? I'll even pay him handsomely to do it so, that it can, so I can sleep at night. Yeah. How's that end up? But didn't we? But didn't we? But didn't we? I never knew you. That's how that ends up. Salvation is a commitment. This commitment begins the day we are saved and our eyes are opened. Or as we read in uh, Matthew 13, go to Matthew 13, 9. What did Jesus say? This is the, at the end of the first telling of that parable of the soils. What did he say in Matthew 13, 9? He who has ears, what? Let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Once we are saved, we can hear our Lord's voice through the enabling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we hear him through the study of his word. For he is the word, according to Holy Scripture, John 1.14. As believers, we are able to hear the voice of our husband, Jesus Christ, the one whom we married by choice. Right? By choice. He said, these are the conditions. As believers, we met the conditions. And as we mature, as is the case in any healthy earthly marriage even, we begin to appreciate our husband more and more. Our commitment, our faith increases the more we abide in his word. This commitment becomes the hallmark that distinguishes believers from posers. And I said this on Sunday. I had it here in a slide. Posers are non-committal. That's the hallmark of a poser, of a professing Christian that's actually not even saved. The hallmark is that they're non-committal. 
They never committed to Jesus Christ. They're, they're, they've got lion eyes. <laughs> they just wanted the goodies bag on the other side. They had never had any intention whatsoever to deny themselves, to let go of the self-life. No intention whatsoever. And you know what? The sad thing is that a non-committal person lacks confidence in the Lord. They're not, they're not that difficult to see. They're not. Even when they come in here, right? They're not that difficult to see. It's actually not that hard to see. They lack a certain confidence. Remember our 80-part series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence? Whatever confidence we have in this world is a grace gift given from God to his children. For example, we have a living hope that we abide in, 1 Peter 1.3, which is something a poser will never have. Our joy is being alive in Christ. In other words, our joy is him. Do I know I'm going to have eternal life? Yep. Yep. Should I live in that hope? Absolutely. But what's my great joy right now? Him. Knowing and loving Him right now. Eternal life takes care of itself. You see? That's the difference between someone who's actually a believer and a poser. A poser doesn't have any real joy in Christ in time. They're just playing a game. Go to John 14, 1. John 14, verse 1. Our joy, a believer's joy, I should say, because you never know who you're talking to. A believer's joy is being alive in Christ. A believer's joy is Him. Having that relationship with Him. Having your eyes and your ears opened up to Him, to His love, to the way, the truth, the life having that available to you daily, like as in now. That's the joy of a believer. John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. From Sunday's message, we have that Jesus makes salvation personal. Salvation implies a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ, not just his doctrines or historical facts, etc., etc. It's a commitment to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are saved, it's your husband. So, let me ask you personally, each one of you, you, a question right now. If you were a man, and some of you are, ladies just have to stretch it a little bit, okay? But if you were a man, and you set out to propose to a woman, do you think it would be personal? For real. So you're a man, you set out to propose to a woman, do you think it's personal? I mean, as far as you're concerned, the one proposing. Duh, I have my note, duh. Right? 
Of course it's personal. We're talking about a permanent relationship here. Not a, you know, well, maybe it'll work out. I speak in biblical terms. Marriage is a permanent relationship, or at least until we die, right? Because we we're not married to our spouses in heaven. So you don't go in there with a maybe it'll work out. This is a, this is a really personal big step for a man to propose to a woman. So salvation, then, is very personal to the one proposing it. Because after all, it's a marriage proposal. Is that fair? It's really personal. For that person, the one proposing, that, for that person has already made the decision on the topic. Their decision has been made. I want to marry this person. That's my desire. It's the one being proposed to that needs to make the decision that will actually ultimately consummate the marriage. As far as the person proposing, super personal, but the decision's already made, they're going to do it. I'm going for it. You know what? For Christ, his marriage to his bride is a big deal. He died on the cross so that he could do it. How, about, how big of a deal is that? And all of heaven will prove it that it's a big deal when the marriage ceremony actually occurs in heaven because we believers are Christ's bride. And it's a big deal. And Christ has gone to prepare a home for his bride, John 14, 1-4. The church, which is we believers, those who were saved prior to the church age, they'll also be there to celebrate our marriage in heaven. That's Revelation 19, 6-9. We saw that as well. So reflect on this. <clears throat> Our husband has an advantage over the rich old man in that eagle song. He can see a person's heart and how a person responds to his proposal. And he can discern immediately whether or not a person is looking at him or his wealth. He can discern immediately. The old man couldn't, apparently. <laughs> or maybe he didn't care, I don't know. But Jesus can. He can discern immediately whether or not a person is looking at him and desires him, his person, who he says he is, or the goodies bag, his wealth. He can see if a person is contemplating marriage or what they perceive they might, you know, get out of the marriage. He can see that. And he can tell if a person is honestly interested in him or just looking at him as a means to an end. In other words, he can distinguish between the arrogant and the humble. And a slide here, lion eyes, a person who supposes to accept Jesus' hand in marriage, but remains noncommittal 
is refused by Christ at the altar. Jesus isn't a sugar daddy for grace that will allow others to use and abuse him. This concept seems to be lost on many professing so-called Christians. In other words, profession is equal to man's words. It's not always confession, which is to say the same thing that God says. Jesus despises such hypocrites. Jesus despises hypocrites. We've learned that several times from this pulpit. It's one of the standout features of his ministry. He despises hypocrites. He'd rather you not even say yes than to say yes and insult him. What does the Bible say about vows? You're better off not even making one. What's a marriage? A vow. You're better off not even making one in the first place than to make one and break it. So says Holy Scripture. Jesus despises hypocrites. How many hypocrites do you know? If I had a hundred arms, I'd hold them all up. And I'm talking about Christians. Some of them are your family members. That's right, I said it. Big deal. Get over it. We're all in the same boat. We know a lot of people that profess to be Christians. They could care less about Jesus Christ. Really could care less. They're actually uglier. You know how everybody likes to point at that? Oh, what a, what a tramp. You know, from the, from the Lion Eyes song. Ooh, look, at she's gross. You know, she, what about them? What's uglier? Some tramp or someone who's betraying Jesus Christ to his face? Pretending to be his bride. Jesus despises hypocrites. He despises people who suppose he'll sign a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> this is what's being peddled from Christ, so-called Christian pulpits. As if Jesus Christ will sign a prenuptial agreement that allows the other person to come and leave with their self-life to keep their self-life for themselves. <laughs> That's beyond insulting, if you get right down to it. I mean, it's, it's like beyond insulting. But that's the arrogance of man. Jesus doesn't accept half-hearted acceptances of his proposal, and he won't tolerate counterfeit brides. Go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. <clears throat> he just won't. Mark 8.34. And you all need to start standing up for him. How about that? If he's truly your husband, shouldn't you be standing up for him? Shouldn't you? Mark 8.34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The net net here, before we get back to our primary course of study, and I called it, we're pretty close on time, but that's okay. The net net is that God saves the humble. God saves the humble. And humility, as I've been saying for years, is the key to the spiritual life. But here's the thing, and I was thinking about it. God wants nothing more than for us to be humble. Like that's his ultimate desire, so that he can, by his own integrity, in satisfaction of his own justice, bless our socks off. That's all he wants us to be. He's not trying to belittle us. He's not trying to thumb us. He's not trying to do anything like that. He's like, just be humble so I can bless your socks off. I, my desire, right, 1 Timothy 2.4, is to save you and to raise you up as one of my own, my children and my family, and, and bless your socks off. That's all I want for you. Will you just be humble? No, I won't. But I'll take the goodies. No, you won't. Sorry, doesn't work like that. God wants nothing more than for us to be humble so he can bless our socks off. In fact, if you think about your own conversion, the way we did at the start of the message, think about your own conversion. You realize that he actively sets out to humble us in order to prep our soil for the sowing of the gospel seed, a la Matthew 13. If you look back on your life, your own conversion, right? You can see him tilling the soil, right? And for a lot of you, for most of you, I would argue, I don't know every circumstance, but it seems to be what the Bible says. You had to be brought low. You had to dig deep, right? You had to turn on some major soil, like, right? And... and <laughs> And run that thing, I don't know what you call that thing in the farm with the little wedges. John, show what's that thing called? A plow? Arrows? Arrows? Arrow. Oh, a farrow. Yeah, whatever. Right? <laughs> it's that thing with the circles that cuts the f things. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's how I say it. I don't know the word. <laughs> right? That's what he did in your life. Think about it. Some of you it took years and years and years. Right? And you, 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 you know, someone would come by with a gospel scene, sow it, and, and it would, you'd be like, yay! And he'd be like, nah. Right? Because the, the soil wasn't just ready yet, right? It wasn't ready yet. It wasn't turned over enough, whatever that was in your life. Or these, you know, in a couple of years later, it gets sown again. You're like, oh, well, it's not bad, but man, I got this, this darn job that just keeps me away. I'm just so busy with this new work and I'm just so busy with the kids, and I'm so busy with the property, and I'm so busy with the, my hobbies, and I'm so, there's just no time. Choke, 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 choke. And then eventually, right? Eventually the soil falls on good seed. You realize at the end of it all, you're exhausted, and you're a fool for even waiting one moment after the first time you heard the gospel. 
And you can start relating to the tax collector who's beating his chest and saying, I can't even look at you, Lord. I'm not even worthy of what you're proposing right now. You're proposing to me? You, you're, you want me? You're choosing me right now? You're saying, I can have you? I just got to give up this mess that I've called life for the last 10, 20, 30, not 10, but 20, 30, 40 years. I've just got to give up on that thing? Yes. God gives grace to the humble. So look at your own conversion. The fact is that he sets out to humble us. And he does everything for us to get us to that place where we realize we need a Savior. Go to 1 Timothy 2.3 real quick. I'm almost out of time. 1 Timothy 2.3. Why does he do that? What's his motivation? Why? Why would he do all that for us? Why would he even go through the trouble of humbling us with such persistence and patience? You know, people ask me sometimes, why so-and-so still alive? And I'm saying, I say, by the grace of God, because they're not saved yet. He's keeping them alive so that there's another day, another possibility that they're saved. That's how I look at it. But they're miserable. Yeah, well, how's hell going to be? What's worse than hell? Keep them alive for 200 years. If on the 200th year they're saved, it's worth it. It's incredible, the patience of God. 1 Timothy 2, 3, why does he do all this? This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his motivation. He wants us all saved. But he cannot and will not compromise his own integrity. You have to come to him in humility. He'll even help you with that thing. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. There you have it. That's his motivation. Why does he, why do he spend all that time with you personally? Make it personal. Why do you keep coming, why do you keep come knocking? You know, why, do you, why do you want to save you? Why, why? Why do you spend all that time cultivating the soil in your life? Because he, this 1 Timothy 2.4, he wants everyone to be saved. That's his base desire. But you've got to be humble. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. We just pray for the, the courage, the faith to go out and spread the, the gospel seed, Father, on soil that we know not if it's ready or not, but that's not our business, Lord. Give us the courage and the strength and the persistence and the tenacity to do that thing. For we know that that's the reason you left us here.
after you saved us. May we bring glory to you in the process. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.